Lady Justice Women of the Court podcast. On this episode, the Lady Justices will discuss the importance of civic education, how state courts interact with federal courts, and how to become a federal judge. The Lady Justices also discuss judicial discipline and financial reporting in their states, and the importance of public confidence in the court system. Chief Justice McCormick and Justice Walker share news about changes in their roles in their respective courts. Chief Justice McCormick discusses her excitement for the first African-American woman to serve on the Michigan Supreme Court in its 185-year history. The Lady Justices also discuss how they handle certified questions from federal, district, or even the United States Supreme Court. Finally, in the lightning round, the justices share their favorite ice cream flavor and if they would travel to the past or the future, given the opportunity. As the holiday season recently passed, the justices also discuss their favorite holiday dishes and holiday movies. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome to Lady Justice Women of the Court. I'm Rhonda Wood, a justice on the Arkansas Supreme Court, and I'm joined by my friends again, Justice Bridget McCormick of the Michigan Supreme Court and Justice Beth Walker of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. So welcome back. And how are you, Beth? I am great, my friend. It is wonderful to see both of you on the on the screen, at least. Our court just finished up. We declared ourselves sine die, which we know is the incorrect pronunciation of that Latin term, but we do it anyway. So here taping at the end of November, we are in between official terms of the court. So, so life is good. How are things in Michigan, Bridget? Things are great. It is great to see both of you. I am nearing the end of my service on the court. I have about four more weeks and my court picked a new chief last week that I'm very excited about, Chief Justice Beth Clement. You all will adore her. She's talented, hilarious, uh, one of the only people in the world I know who can both talk complicated doctrine while installing a new toilet. She really is like, her skills are off the charts. You, there are, I don't know people like her. You'll love her. I don't know if you have had this problem yet. Maybe you haven't had to try, but I keep trying to change my Twitter profile to get chief out of my title and it won't let me edit it. If you guys have any advice on uh, what's going on with Twitter, I'm, I'm ready to hear it, but I guess that's not really what we're here to talk about. So. Well, no. well, I would love to hear it too, actually, because I'm hoping to add chief to my title on Twitter here on January 1. So if there's a glitch, I guess we need to know about it. Well, if you can figure it out, I'm still Judge Rhonda Wood from 11 years ago, being a judge. So happy to hear that. I've edited my profile many times over the years, but since the latest Twitter takeover, I have been unable to edit it. So I I guess eventually I'll send some kind of tweet to Twitter support and see if I get any help. I'll keep you guys updated. I'll let you know. Yeah. So, and there's a replacement though, Bridget um, announced Oh, yeah. Big, big, big news. Yeah, more big news. The governor named my replacement last week, Kyra Bolden Harris, who will be the first Black woman on the Michigan Supreme Court ever in 185 years of history. And she's a talented state legislator. I've known her since she was a law student for a long time. And I'm really excited for Michigan and for my colleagues that they're going to be able to serve on what will be an historic uh, Michigan Supreme Court. You'll love Kyra as well. She's wonderful. You should have her on as a guest one day. 
Absolutely. That's wonderful. So very exciting news out of Michigan and for you personally. So I know you're ready for the, the transition in the next phase. So talking about the podcast today, as you know, we're here to promote civic education concerning state courts. Uh, but one topic we haven't really talked about is how state courts interact with federal courts. And I assume, I know there's a lot of lawyers that listen, but there's also a lot of non-lawyers who may be curious about how state cases may be in state court versus federal court. So in this episode, we're going to sort of compare how that happens and why a case may be one or the other, and then how they intersect um, in some cases. So I thought first, Beth, maybe you could talk a little bit about the difference between federal judges and state judges. And I know we can't cover everything here. So other than us being, you know, superior and hearing more cases, <laughs> what other differences are there? Well, I'll start with things that most of our listeners probably know, but a few additionals as far as how you become a federal judge. Of course, uh, as we often, as folks often see played out, particularly when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court of the United States, federal judges, Article Three judges are appointed. So that's the district judges, the courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court, and then confirmed by the Senate. And, you know, that whole process is designed by the Constitution for the Senate to be involved. People can have differences of opinion about what level of involvement the Senate should or should not have and what that process should look like. But it is in part a political process, uh, at least at the beginning. And then we talked on the last episode, I think, about terms and term limits and age limits on state Supreme Court judges our justices and other members of the state judiciaries. And in federal courts, we often say they have lifetime appointments. They're there for life. But just to be overly technical and nerdy, because that's what we love to do here, I will point out that Article 3, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution actually says that the judges shall hold their offices during good behavior. It doesn't say for their life. It says during good behavior. And of course, the impeachment provision of the federal constitution sets out how a federal judge could be removed, but it's not technically under the constitution lifetime. It is during good behavior. So that is kind of the setup of how you become a federal judge and how long you get to be a federal judge. Rhonda, why don't you tell us about what federal courts take up? What kind of cases do they have? Sure. So federal courts are considered limited jurisdiction courts. So they hear cases involving um, primarily federal law in the federal constitution. There is a provision in Article 3 that, in the constitution that gave Congress the power to provide for them to hear diversity jurisdiction cases, which would be um, cases between citizens of different states, perhaps citizens of foreign state, um, subjects of a foreign nation, and those provisions, the controversy does have to exceed 75,000. Um, so there are some limited circumstances where they're hearing cases that are not involving sort of federal law and federal constitution claims, um, but it's pretty technical. So I'm not going to, you know, our focus is state courts. Primarily, they're focused on federal law. Comparatively, state courts are really considered general jurisdiction courts. And so we hear claims involving the state law, our state 
statutes and federal statutes. We hear state constitutional claims, we hear federal constitution claims. Um, so really it's the gamut. And that's why, you know, we say that most cases, 95% of people's interactions are going to be in state courts um, because of that. Um, so it sounds really simple um, that these cases go to state courts, these cases go to federal courts, um, but it doesn't mean they always stay in one particular place or the other. Um, there's a moving, it's sort of a moving target. Um, so Bridget, even though the, I sound, it sounded like there were clear categories, can you talk about like one of the ways that perhaps a state court case could end up in the U.S. Supreme Court? Yeah, um, I think probably the most common state court case that a litigant would appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, and by appeal, I mean file a petition for certiorari and hope that the U.S. Supreme Court would take a look at it, is a case where the state Supreme Court has decided a question of federal constitutional law. So commonly, the way that happens most often is in criminal cases where there's a U.S. constitutional claim. There is often also a state constitutional claim. Um, and I'm interested in whether this happens in, in Arkansas and um, in West Virginia. But for, for a long time, litigants really, and we've talked about this a little bit, especially with uh, Jeff Sutton earlier, litigants only raised U.S. constitutional claims, even though they were litigating their, their case in the state courts. And if the Michigan Supreme Court, for example, decides a question of U.S. constitutional law, a litigant who thinks that the Michigan Supreme Court got that wrong can go to the U.S. Supreme Court and ask the U.S. Supreme Court to review it. And every once in a while they do. So I, I can give you one example in 20, well, it's a good question about when the Michigan Supreme Court decided the case, probably 10 or 11, the Michigan Supreme Court decided a double jeopardy case. I was not yet on the Michigan Supreme Court, but I was working at the University of Michigan Law School and my co-teacher, the, the person I taught my classes with, was a very successful Supreme Court litigator. And he was contacted about filing a cert petition on behalf of the Michigan criminal defendant who had lost, whose name was Evans. Um, and I worked with him on this case. It was Evans versus Michigan. And we filed a cert petition in the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court granted it. And while I was running for office, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the Michigan Supreme Court in Evans versus Michigan. The, the, the issue was sort of a technical one. The trial court had required the prosecution to prove an extra element in a criminal case and then I think realized its mistake and granted Evans motion for a directed verdict of acquittal. And the Court of Appeals in Michigan and the Michigan Supreme Court reversed, I mean, the Court of Appeals reversed, the Michigan Supreme Court affirmed the, the Court of Appeals for reasons that made some sense, you know, in a common sense kind of way, you would think like, why do you hold that against the prosecution? But it was not consistent with the Supreme Court doctrine. And we kind of recognized it pretty quickly when we, uh, when this case was brought to us and the Supreme Court reversed eight to one. So that's one example. It's happened since I've been on the court one other time in, I forget, 2013 or 14, one of the early juvenile lifer cases. I think it was about retroactivity. I actually was in the dissent and the U.S. Supreme Court re reversed the Michigan Supreme Court. So it's only happened a couple of times, but that's that's commonly where we see it. I don't know. Do you have an example like that, Beth, and from West Virginia? 
So our, my example is just a little different, although it's recent. And that is the case of Dawson versus Steger that went to the Supreme Court of the United States. And it has to do with a highly technical and I would say interesting, although I'm not, I don't know tax law very well, provision of federal law that's called the Intergovernmental Tax Immunity Doctrine. It basically, that means, um, to simplify it, that if you earn wages from the federal government, those wages can be taxed by state government as income, the way that you know many states, not all states, but most states have a state income tax. The doctrine says that the state can go ahead and tax those federal income dollars as income under state law, so long as they don't discriminate between state and federal employees. So as long as they don't treat the federal employees worse, essentially, than other folks who are earning from private or whatever, from private employers or from state employers. So in this case, a a West Virginian was a retired federal marshal, and he didn't Uh, He objected to the fact that his retirement income as a federal marshal was taxed by the state of West Virginia as income. So his pension was taxed. And he took the position that because state law does allow some law enforcement pensions not to be taxed, that his shouldn't be taxed either. And the trial court in West Virginia said, yeah, we agree with the U.S. marshal. He should not be taxed. When it got to the Supreme Court, I was brand new, so I'm going to plead whatever, newness. We said, no, 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 it's fine. He can be taxed. And it went to the Supreme Court of the United States, and they, in a unanimous decision, (laughs) reversed the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia and found that the West Virginia law did indeed violate the intergovernmental tax immunity doctrine. So that's a hopefully short explanation of a complicated measure to say, yeah, in 2019, we were reversed. And that is the most recent uh, example of a case. So it's not always U.S. Constitution issues. It can be other little quirks where state and federal law collide. Rhonda, how about Arkansas? Yeah, so this is interesting for me, at least. We're probably really nerdy, so we we are interested in this probably more so. But I think that there's a couple of Arkansas cases, so I'm probably going to give you a couple examples, but one, it, I think that Beth and Bridget may recognize the fact pattern, but in 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert out of an Arkansas Supreme Court case and an Alabama Supreme Court case for two 14-year-olds that were both convicted of capital murder at the age of 14 and both sentenced to life without parole. In Alabama, it was a direct appeal. So the the individual was convicted and then appealed in Arkansas. He had been convicted, had his first appeal, and then he was it was through habeas relief that he came to the Supreme Court and the Arkansas Supreme Court um, denied relief. Both challenges were under the Eighth Amendment that it was cruel and unusual because under Alabama and Arkansas, if you were convicted of capital murder, you automatically got life without parole. So there was no discretionary sentencing. Um, It was just automatic because it was death or life. And because you were juvenile, you got life. So both of those went up to SCOTUS. It was Miller versus Alabama and Hobbs v. Jackson for Arkansas. Both of those cases were reversed. Miller versus Alabama became the famous case that most people quote because that was the lead opinion. Hobbs v. Jackson actually got 
was reversed within Miller v. The Alabama. It um, was a 5-4 decision. I don't think there's any going back from it, though. It has now made dramatic changes across the United States. And I believe this is one of those cases where we talked about it with Judge Sutton that a lot of states and Bridget said Michigan had are starting to interpret their constitutions to provide even more protections for juveniles. And really, the I think for people listening that the thought is that juveniles are unique and their brains are developing differently. And so it's just to what the Supreme Court said was to make sure that you're having sentencing hearings um, for juveniles that are taking into account what their brain is sort of status is at the time they committed their crime and making individual decisions. So that those were really dramatic shifts. And one of them came out of Arkansas. And then we had a unique one. This is something, uh, you know, you always hear usually of them coming from like the final court at state court, like a state Supreme Court going to the U.S. Supreme Court. But we had a case from our court of appeals. It was a personal jurisdiction case that the Supreme Court a few years ago has kind of U.S. Supreme Court made some changes to personal jurisdiction. And our Court of Appeals sent it to, there was a petition for review to us, and we denied to take it on review. And our U.S. Supreme Court, in the U.S. Supreme Court, granted cert, vacated, and remanded to the Court of Appeals and in light of some decisions it had made. And so when it went back to the Court of Appeals, then we took it. And I was giddy to write a decision um, and rewrite a new test for Arkansas um, so that our court established a new test. But anyway, that's kind of weird that it came from the Court of Appeals. So um, another example of how federal courts and state courts interact are through certified questions. So for those of you unfamiliar, federal courts could be hearing a case for we talked about um, could be diversity jurisdiction or it could be something else. And it really involves a question of state law. And it may be that the state law is not established um, and that the state Supreme Court hasn't really interpreted, um, particularly with us, it comes, there's a statute involved that has been passed and that we have not weighed in on. And rather than the federal court sort of to guess how the state Supreme Court will interpret it. Um, they will send it to the state Supreme Court and say, you know, would you answer this question? We'll pause our litigation and you tell us how you're going to interpret this and then send it back to us and we'll keep moving along with our lawsuit. It's probably the best lay <laughs> explanation I can give you. And so my question, this has been a topic among lawyers I know for a long time is, I'm curious, I don't know if we've talked about it, is do each of you receive very many federal questions? And if so, is there a difference on your court and your colleagues on how you take them? And do you always accept them? Or how do you handle them, Beth? So this is really interesting. And I look forward to this part of the conversation because when you when I've talked to state Supreme Court justices in other states, it could not be more different in terms of the attitudes and how people view these certified questions, these requests coming from federal courts. In short, in West Virginia, we welcome them and we love them and we take them as a matter of courtesy always. So we don't get that many. We, do, we just we get probably though one every term. So probably at least two to four a year, I would say that we take these certified questions. They can come from, I suppose, technically, I haven't looked at this. I suppose it could come from the Supreme Court of the United States, but more 
Frequently, we get them from the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appeals level of the federal courts or from the district courts here in West Virginia. So we, like I said, we take them, we put them on our Rule 20 docket, we give them the longest arguments. The one thing we do do sometimes, because the federal court will normally phrase it as a literal question, what is the answer to this? Or does West Virginia law say A or B, yes or no? And occasionally we will rephrase them and re uh, just because we, we either don't like the question or we think it can be more clearly communicated in a different way. But other than that, we love, we are yes to certified questions in West Virginia. But I have learned that that is not the case in every single state. So Bridget, tell us about Michigan. Yeah, it is so interesting. When I arrived at the court, we got one, I don't know, um, maybe my second term there. And I learned then about the deep divide between my own colleagues about how they thought we should respond to them. And their differences don't track along any other jurisprudentially significant lines. So it's not a secret because they've they've all written about it. So Chief Justice Young at the time, he was he was the Chief Justice when I joined the court, felt very strongly that the judicial power of the state Supreme Court did not include answering certified questions because he believed it to be issuing an advisory opinion. And the Michigan Constitution does specifically allow us to answer certified questions from the governor or the legislature. We have that specific constitutional power. And he therefore makes, you know, I think a, a decent argument that since the Michigan Supreme Court specifically allows us to do that and not answer certified questions from a federal court, he believed the judicial power did not include responding to those certified questions. On the other hand, Justice Markman, who became the chief justice after Justice Young, felt strongly that it was an obligation to, you know, as a matter of comedy, as a matter of uh, being a good partner to answer questions from the federal courts. And he and he appreciated that that a federal court that was deciding a question that was dependent on state law that they would ask us. He, he felt like that, that it's respectful that the, the federal courts would ask us and therefore we should we should answer them. And their their debate kind of went back and forth over the years. But I would say since I joined the court and the justices that joined after me, I think we all lean in favor of answering them, which is not to say that we answer all of them. I, I know we turned one down last year after thinking carefully about whether there was anything we could add, and we didn't think there was. Um, so there was a practical reason to deny that one. But for the most part, we now do think, I, th I think a majority of us are, are sort of in the West Virginia camp, uh, and, and we we, we do answer them. Um, I think we get a, like you, Beth, maybe one a year. We don't, we don't get a lot of them. I had an interesting conversation with a friend who's now on the Sixth Circuit, who used to be on the Michigan Supreme Court, Joan Larson. And she said as a federal judge, when she's deciding a question that really depends on how Tennessee thinks about that, the answer to that question, or Michigan thinks about the answer to that question, she feels like it's inappropriate for her to sort that out if the state Supreme Court would. She really prefers it when the state Supreme Court will accept and answer answer those questions. So that's sort of how we think about it. I don't know, Rhonda, do you get them often? What do you, what do you all do? So I think that we, we probably used to get them really frequently when I first came on the court and maybe because we've made it shift a little bit, we probably get them less frequently. So when we, when I first came on the court, the reaction was we, 
I hate to say almost knee jerk, we took them. And it was sort of, here's a federal question, we take it. And, and maybe I was like, over eager beaver. It was, you know, I'm new on the court. And it was like, every single thing in front of me, it was like, this is emotion, you know, a question to me. And so it's like, we went full force researching it, or, you know, I would make a decision. And so, you know, I remember that one time I came back and it was, it was like a statute, but the legislature had already like passed a new statute. I was like, why are we answering a certified question and spending our time on something that it's like, if that case is never going to happen again. And so I wrote a couple of dissents. Um, and I remember that some of my colleagues that are no longer there, they were just like appalled. It was like, this is respect. And I was like, well, it seems like they should have just as much respect to us to, to figure out that, you know, their law clerks didn't spend a lot of time on it. And so now I think our court does, you know, we're really careful in to make sure there's, we've done an improvidently granted one where we've gotten into the facts and found out that there wasn't actually a dispute involving the statute that was sent to us. And so I think now we're really careful maybe about which judge is sending them and, and looking at them really closely. And I think that because we've been more careful that we probably have gotten less. Um, but I do think that when it is a legitimate question I would rather have us ask than have that sort of bad precedent out there that now our trial court judges are relying on because attorneys are quoting the federal courts, you know, until a case actually did get for uh, to us. So if it is, you know, a way to get it, then the research, I'd rather them ask us. But I know Beth said the Fourth Circuit, is Fourth Circuit yours? We, I have not seen one from the Eighth Circuit in my, I guess, eight years on our court. And I thought that was really interesting because I know like Texas, they get them all the time from the Fifth Circuit and whatnot. But I talked to an Eighth Circuit judge and he was like, well, I didn't know Arkansas would take them. And I was like, well, we would, you know? <laughs> I was like, despite the, my dissents in the past, <laughs> I was like, yeah, we would. And so I have a feeling we may get an Eighth Circuit one um, before long. But Bridget, you do get them from the circuit as well? We do. We get them from the district court and the circuit court. And sometimes we'll get, we got one at one point from a district court in California that um, had to answer a question oh. that depended on Michigan law. So yeah, we get them, we get them from, from all over. Yeah. Yeah. And just as a really quick example of what it looks like, our opinion that came out on November 17th in Ball versus United Financial Casualty Company was from the Fourth Circuit, uh, a certified question. The parties were quibbling over insurance coverage in an automobile accident where you had folks, you know, there was questions. And the bottom line was there were provisions in the insurance policy that violated state law. And as you all know, but our listeners might not, state insurance laws are really technical and require all kinds of very specific kinds of coverage. It varies from state to state. So this is not unusual for an insurance company that might write auto policies in many states to inadvertently, probably or not, um, you know, have a provision that violates it. And the federal court, uh, the Fourth Circuit just wanted to know, well, what happens to the rest of the policy if this, if this exclusion violates West Virginia law? what happens next? And that's the question uh, we answered. So if you want to check it out, you can check it out on our, on our website. And the case again came out on November 17th. Well, that's great. That's a really recent example to send people to look for. 
Well, and so our last topic is, I think, a little bit different too, is judicial discipline. Because this has been in the news a lot, I think, especially with reporting. There's been a heightened awareness over um, financial reporting in the federal judiciary. And Congress passed the Courthouse Ethics Transparency Act in May of 2022 to sort of heighten and make it more transparent for disclosures of financial transactions with the federal judiciary. And then also federal judges are subject to the Code of Conduct for U.S. Judges, um, which is adopted by the Federal Judges Judicial Conference. I did not realize that if a complaint is filed concerning a federal judge, that that actually goes to the chief of the circuit in which that federal judge sits. And that chief can actually then decide the merits of that complaint against the judge, or the, the chief can appoint a committee to hear that and then decide what sort of sanction to do. But he doesn't, they don't have the ability to really remove them from office. Um, so it's very limited in their ability. Um, and that's really, I think, pretty different than what how state courts are handled. So I'm curious, Bridget, how does judicial discipline and financial reporting work in Michigan? Well, they're separate. So, so financial reporting, we, we have an annual disclosure that only asks us to disclose any compensation we received over, I think, $375. So we do not have the rigorous reporting that's required of federal judges. Honestly, that's something that we are considering, and I personally think we should. I, you know, Courts only have public confidence to enforce their judgments, and transparency, I think, promotes public confidence. So I, 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 bet, I bet the court will move in that direction, but it's going to be something that's going to happen when I'm not there. But I think it's, a, it's probably a good move. Judicial discipline is handled by an independent state agency, which is called the Judicial Tenure Commission. It was established by constitutional amendment. And it is made up of nine people, each serving three-year terms. Four of them are judges who are elected by the various judicial associations. So a court of appeals judge, a probate judge, a circuit judge, and then a, the, the constitutional amendment says a judge from a court of limited jurisdiction. So those are district courts in Michigan. And then three are members of the state bar who are elected by the state bar. The state bar has an election to appoint those. Um, and one has to be a judge and the other two have to not be a judge. And then two members are appointed by the governor. And those are those members are required to be not judges. Terms are, of course, staggered. And then there are rules that the Supreme Court has passed that give all of that process a lot more meat. And the, the power the Judicial Tenure Commission has is to investigate claims of misconduct. And claims of misconduct are based on violations of the Michigan Code of Judicial Conduct and then to recommend sanctions to the Michigan Supreme Court. So ultimately it's the court who imposes sanctions, but the recommendation comes from the Judicial Tenure Commission. And I, I think it's fair to say that for the most part, the investigative process, which sometimes leads to a full hearing or some negotiations with an accused judicial officer, Often there is some resolution of the complaint before Judicial Tenure Commission comes to the Michigan Supreme Court. They usually only come to the Michigan Supreme Court when they're asking for the ultimate punishment, which is removal from the bench. And that does happen once or twice a term, but for the most part, they manage their docket and uh, come to resolutions with 
with the accused judicial officers. How, how about in West Virginia, Beth? Um, so on the disclosure reporting side, judges, elected judges in West Virginia filed the same disclosure that most other statewide elected officials file, and that is disclosing any income above a certain threshold, whether members of your family work in state government, state contracts. It's pretty comprehensive. Um, You have to list all of your investments over a certain amount unless they're in a retirement account, which I don't really understand the difference there, but those are publicly available. You know, folks can uh, check those out and I don't mind doing it. I mean, I think that's important and, you know, it's kind of a administrative thing that you do, but I don't mind that voters or the folks who come before our courts can see this information. And I think it's important. We also have sort of a double layer, the judiciary, we, the Supreme Court, also require judges to make certain disclosures about more specific things like speaking for groups, reimbursement for travel, you know, if you go to a conference, that kind of thing, other compensation. So there's a fair amount, I would say, a fair amount of reporting in West Virginia. On the judicial discipline side, we have a judicial investigation commission that is essentially part of the judiciary. It is appointed by the Supreme Court and has a composition much like Michigan and representatives of the trial bench, the the members of the public, uh, all of that. And they have the authority to investigate and pretty much do anything except remove someone from office because only the legislature through the power of impeachment can remove an elected public official in West Virginia. So what happens if the Judicial Investigation Commission, as a practical matter, finds that someone you know, should not be a judge, they can suspend them for a period of time, but they cannot remove them. That falls on the the legislature. And you might think, well, they should be able to remove them as a practical matter, just as Bridget outlined. You know, if someone really is found to engage in serious misconduct, it's more likely that they resign and move on rather than really test this whole, well, you, you can't take me out kind of situation. But it is an interesting, it's part of the judiciary, in my views, authority and obligation to regulate ourselves, just like we regulate the practice of law, we're in charge of disciplining lawyers, we have the responsibility of, of, you know, looking out and making sure that judges follow the rules too. What about Arkansas? So it's, I think we're probably like West Virginia, we're very a lot of transparency about financial transactions. So it's all available online. Um, It's any gift over $100. And then it's any income you or a family member that lives in your household has over a thousand. And then it's any bank account, any stock you have to, and you just disclose whether it's over a thousand or over 12,500. Um, but it's pretty detailed. You have to list everything um, unless it's in a trust that you cannot access and control. But if you can manage the IRA, the fund, you have to list them all. So it's it's very apparent. And that way, any attorney in your court could go online and look and see whether you had you know ownership and what amount in any particular business or trading anything, which is much more, I think, what the federal courts are trying to go to. For judicial discipline, again, I think from what you hear that it's way easier and state courts have much more authority to discipline and remove judges than the federal courts do. 
And we likewise, we are more like Michigan. It's an independent commission set up right now through our constitution. It involves trial judges um, appointed by the Supreme Court. It involves attorneys and then lay persons as well. The governor gets appointment. The Speaker of the House gets an appointment. The President of our Senate gets an appointment. Um, so it's kind of an intermix that we all have appointments. Um, they can do everything except suspend without pay. So they can caution, sanction, suspend with pay. If it's a suspension without pay, even if it's an agreed um, suspension without pay, it has to come to our court. So it's almost, we just had one recently. It was just actually two weeks ago. It was, they actually can plea. So it was an agreed suspension without pay, but it was for 60 days. But when they do that, they know that we can agree, vacate, modify, and we imposed 18 months. So we went from 60 to 18 months and then the judge resigned immediately. But if it's removal from office, that again would have to be us. So they would either choose to have a, and it would be a hearing, a public trial or um, at judicial discipline, or they could agree to do it, but then we would have to sign off and do the final order. But other than that, they handle most everything um, themselves. But so it's pretty similar. But I do think it showcases that, you know, I think state courts, we are policing ourselves, like Beth said, and but we have way more sort of, I think, authority and we step in pretty quickly. I think when things happen, I think we've had three or four suspensions this year. So I don't think that reflects good, um, you know, on the judiciary, but I think it reflects that there may be things going on in the federal judiciary that they just can't move on. Well, and I, you know, I, it, not to be critical, but it, it appears sometimes, you know, whether you are a state or a federal judge, if you are not subject to occasional election or other sort of forced transparency measures, I can see how it's easy to, you know, not really be on top of things. And I feel like the federal judiciary got behind a little bit. I mean, I think they're trying to catch up on the disclosure side, but, you know, and, and so I cheer for them now. I'm like, well, let's mm -hmm. let, let get it right. But it's unfortunate that it took some difficult situations for specific judges for, for that all to happen. I don't know, Bridget, if you have a comment about that. I agree completely. It, it, it's definitely, the, you don't want the timing to be we're, we're moving for increased transparency because of these problems, right? You, you would prefer the public understand that you're moving for increased transparency because you believe it actually builds public confidence. Um, so hopefully Michigan gets ahead of this uh, before there's some story like that. That isn't what's caused us to reevaluate our disclosure. It's, it's really just building public confidence. So I think that's, I think that's right. I, I have to say, I, I was at the National Center had a has a meeting every November of the chiefs and general counsels from companies that sit on the National Center's advisory committee and board. And we had that meeting last week in DC and they released their current year public satisfaction data and the public confidence in courts is just continuing to decline and it's really upsetting. And the National Center breaks down their questions when they do the survey between state and federal courts. And I always find that a little bit hilarious because I think most of the public doesn't know the difference, despite our amazing podcast. <laughs> and I think, you know, we're, we're all boats rise and fall with the tide. The public confidence in federal courts and state courts is, it, it benefits one another. I think we all can help each other in this area. And sadly, 
probably also can hurt each other in this area. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I will say it's hard. My husband does, I'll just be honest, most of the financial things. And so it's really hard to pay attention into, you know, we don't have those caliber cases, but for the most part, but it's, it is difficult. If I wasn't forced to sort of do that form every year and really pay attention and turn that in and look at it to really know and make sure that, you know, what companies and have some frank conversations about, you know, try not to buy stock in Arkansas companies and, you know, I want to support them, but I also want to avoid the conflicts, um, you know, as much as possible. And so you have to really be deliberate about it. And I don't know that we train new judges well on that either. And that, I think that's something we have to include and, in, you know, try to as I've gotten more mature on the bench in that respect is thinking about what things we need to train the new, the newbies on. So now we're going to move into our lightning round as we close out this episode. And, and so we'll, we'll just go and in whatever order you two want to go, I'll go last. And so we're going to start with your favorite ice cream. I'm happy to go first. Mine is chocolate, anything chocolate, but don't put any nuts in it. Uh, Mint chocolate chip. Mine is chocolate, even double fudge chocolate, but I'm with you, Bridget, no nuts. So the other question is, if you had the ability, would you travel to the past or to the future? 100% to the future. I am all about the future. Can't wait for the future. Want the future now. I definitely lean future in in this lightning round question, but I'm not sure there's a great answer here. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm all about meditation. I'm trying to stay in the moment. So maybe I'm, I'll say lean future. I think in the past, only because I read so much history that I think I would like to sort of travel back and and really experience it. So we have gone through one holiday season before we've recorded this and we're going through another one. So I'm curious, your favorite holiday side dish? I mean, am I going to reveal myself to be the most basic, boring person, but I love stuffing and I never make stuffing anytime or eat stuffing anytime other than Thanksgiving and maybe Christmas. Love stuffing. Hashtags team stuffing. I am with you. It may be simple, but there is nothing better than good stuffing. My sister made it this time around in a crock pot and I was a little skeptical, but it was fabulous. So, wow. I do love stuffing too. I have tried the crock pot when we've ran out of oven space. Um, It's not bad, but I will say that my daughter-in-law introduced me to a side dish when she joined our family and you guys will laugh. So this will be really basic that she has, her family had mac and cheese, homemade mac and cheese at every holiday. And I now I've become like obsessed with it. So truly Southern, truly Southern. If mac and cheese is wrong, I don't want to be right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite holiday movie? I guess I'm, it's a theme for me today, but I am a sucker for It's a Wonderful Life and I can watch it every year. And I love the message and basic Bridget, let's just call me. Oh, no, no. So I kind of go back and forth. Like I just watched Elf for the first time a couple of years ago. And now I, it's not my favorite Christmas holiday movie, but it is, 
it is it is on the short list now um, because it's so ridiculous. But I'm going to choose White Christmas, Bing Crosby, Rosemary Clooney. There is just nothing more comforting than watching that. I could watch it over and over again. It's such a contrast to everything we deal with day to day. I'm not anti It's a Wonderful Life, but I'm going to choose White Christmas. Okay, so I guess we're going to go old school. So I love Bells of St. Mary's, which I know it's not like a traditional, traditional Christmas movie, but if we're going old school, then that's where I am. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's really wonderful. Um, and I just watched Elf two weeks ago for the first time. And did you like it, it or fabulous. is it, was it too stupid? No, it was fabulous. It was wonderful. Um, so with Bridget, that, have you watched Elf? I have to Bridget, know. Bridget, have you seen Elf? I have, and I love Elf. It's pretty okay. great. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So we're all team elf as well. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to close out this episode. Thank you again for joining us at Lady Justice, Women of the Court. And again, you can find us all on Twitter, maybe with different profiles or handles if we ever figure that out. But until then, we hope you have a wonderful holiday season and we will see you in the next year. Thanks for listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. To learn more about this podcast, access past episodes, or find links to our social media, visit ladyjusticepod.com. You can also record a voice message with a question or comment. Don't forget to subscribe and share our show with a friend of the genre. Remember, the opinions expressed on the program are the justices alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective courts. Until next time, 